Starring Bela Day in... But, Ma, that's my favorite movie. Oh, well, all right. But don't you spend too much time in front of that TV. Do you hear me? Yes, Ma. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, But Ma, That's My Favorite Movie, and I am your host, B. Lede. So if you're new to this podcast, what I do is introduce movies by having a different theme each episode. I'll talk about two movies that have a plot that centers around the subject of the theme. I'll introduce the movies by giving a summary of the beginning of the movie up until the major plot point. So I don't spoil the ending just in case you're interested and want to check it out. So you are in for a treat today, which I hope will keep you coming back for more. Today's episode is titled, But Ma, That's My Favorite Film Noir Movie. But before we get into this theme, just in case you're wondering what is a film noir, let's go ahead and talk about my social media and my website for this podcast. So we are available on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So please follow our social media pages, follow one or all of them for a sneak peek about upcoming episodes. And I actually do that with a game called Guess the Movies slash Theme. So you can either guess what theme you think the movies have in common, or you can guess the individual movies. Now my website is but ma, that's my favorite movie.com where you will be able to write reviews, give movie or theme suggestions, and more. All of the handles to the social media and link to the website are in the show notes slash description box below. Now make sure if you're loving the episodes to please go ahead and give us a review on the Apple app or on the website directly. And if you do that, you'll get a shout out on one of my episodes. All right, so this theme is actually being done because of a request. And it was done by, and please forgive me, I am extremely terrible at um, pronouncing names. <laughs> but um, the name, I believe, is Ardenique. Um, But it does start with an A. And um, this person did want me to get more into uh, film noir. And I hope I'm saying that right. Film noir movies. So I just was like, okay, let's go ahead and get into it. Now, I did already talk about some film noir movies, and I believe, I think it was the 50s episode, like, but my, that's my favorite uh, 1950s movie. Uh, One of those movies, or I believe both of them were um, film noir movies. They both had those elements of it. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I kind of went into it a little bit. Now, if you're wondering what a um, film noir movie is, I'm going to go ahead and give you like a quick definition of it. So just in case if you didn't catch the 50th episode. So film noir is a style or genre of cinematic graphic film marked by a mood of pessimism, fatalism, 
and menace. The term was originally applied to American thriller or detective films made in the period between 1944 and 1954 and to the work of directors such as Orson Welles, Fritz Lang, and Billy Wilder, which Fritz Lang is one of the directors of one of the movies we're going to talk about. Now to go into it a little bit more because like visually I understand it what a film noir movie looks like but at the same time I was trying to figure out okay what's kind of like the best way to explain it to someone and to me and just from like different articles that I was looking at it it really is just the element that make up the style. So I'm going to go ahead and list some of these elements. So most of the time, they're either in an urban setting. Uh, the main protagonist is an anti-hero, which normally means either like a cynical detective, a hard-boiled tough guy, a callous gangster, or victims of circumstance. Uh, it can have stark lighting effects. So... Something that I've seen a lot is a lot of like shadow work and like a shadow where like the room is like really dark and maybe they're highlighting the eyes or they're high or it's just light around like the eyes or the nose or, um, but it's just the lighting effects. Uh, it's it's very specific for the style. Um, then sometimes they go into frequent use of flashbacks. So they, you normally like narrate what's going on sometimes or like they narrate into what's going on and normally even sometimes it's like the situation already happened and they're like hey let me tell you the story of what happened or um it's like a starting towards the end of the story but let me show you how I got here and then telling the story in flashbacks or just having flashbacks throughout the film Um, They normally have intricate plots or they have a feminine fatale, which normally is the love interest or it's someone who's like almost seducing someone that is going to be doing something bad to someone else. And, you know, they're probably one of the main factors that are helping them or pushing them into doing what they're going to do. Um, And then last but not least, there's like these dramatic camera angles, whether it's extreme close ups or, you know, if you have like a two person shot and one person's closer to the camera and the other person's in the background, um, normally they'll just they'll make them look balanced instead of making it look imbalanced um, to create like equal importance between the two people. And so those were just some of the most like kind of common elements in these style of movies. Um, But it normally always also has to do with murder, murder, and murder. And a detective trying to solve it. Um, Or or some type of detective, even if they aren't a major character. But you're going to have police or a detective involved in it somehow because of the murder. So I wanted to choose some movies that were really good of course movies that I personally could get into because you know when we think of classic movies we think 
of the type of content that was in that time period. And, you know, me being young and thinking of a classic movie, sometimes I don't have the best judgment um, or actually the best way to say this is I'm probably more judgmental to watch those because you're thinking, oh, it's from a different time. You know, do I want to sit down and watch that? And so I got very, very lucky that I was able to find two movies that were super, super good. I'm always really hesitant or I'm really um, particular with the movies that I watch. And I say this time and time again, but I just can't say it enough. But this podcast grants me the opportunity to watch movies I would have never watched otherwise. So when I have these different themes and I'm going and having to choose movies, sometimes I'm choosing movies I've never seen before. And it's bringing me out of my comfort zone from movies that I normally watch. And, you know, it's forcing me to look and explore other movies that are out there other than the ones that I've seen or the ones that I'm naturally interested in. And so, yes, these movies were so, so good. And as I'm watching these movies and I'm like into it, like I'm so into it, I am not even on my phone. And I'll tell you this, I'm terrible about being on my phone while I watch movies because I feel like I could multitask it, which to be honest, I'm not really good at doing that um, because normally I end up more focused on my phone than the movie. And it just, the movie plays as just background noise, really. But these were movies that I was trying to figure out what the heck happened. And it made me want to sit and watch it and pay attention. Now, something I do want to say about these movies is I don't feel as though these two films are traditionally a film noir like it does have some of the elements but I guess you could say I feel like it's less dramatic um the the whole kind of like cynical type of character they did it I don't think from my understanding I don't think neither one of them had these um if I had to uh look at the two films And then just kind of, you know, picking from the elements, which ones stand out the most to me. Um, They both have something in common. And I believe they both have characters that are just victims of circumstance. One. And it's like they both share that. Uh, The lighting effects, not so much. Uh, Flashbacks, not so much. They do have intricate plots. And I'm trying to see... Just one of them has the feminine uh, fatale. Um, and they and then it has the camera angles in the urban setting. Actually, only one of them is in the urban setting, really. But okay, they have some of them. But I feel like it's a more softer side of the film noir. But it still gets the point across. And I really did enjoy them. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into these movies. Light. Camera. Action, honey if a girl killed every man who got fresh with her how much of the male population you think there'd be left that quote is by crystal carpenter who is played by drumroll please in 
Sotherin. And the first movie we're going to talk about is The Blue Gardenia. This movie was released March 27th, 1953. The writer is Charles Hoffman, who also um, was a writer for the Batman series and the Green Hornet. And so Charles wrote the screenplay and um, the story is by Vera Caspery. And it looks like she had actually wrote a novel called The Gardenia and Out of the Blue. And then there was also a novella made about the same premise as well. All right. And the director for this movie is Fritz Lang, who also directed Spies and M. All right. So let's go ahead and get into this summary. So. A newspaper columnist named Casey goes to visit the telephone company and ends up flirting with one of the telephone operators named Crystal, who is the character I quoted before. Now, he simply just asks her her age, and she actually gives him more than that, including her phone number. Now, there's a man named Harry, who is an artist that is always up at this telephone company, And he tends to draw the operators while they're working. And he's actually drawing Crystal. And when he hears that she gives Casey her phone number, he's shocked because he says that he's asked for her number multiple times and she wouldn't even budge and give it to him. So whenever he hears the number, he does make sure to write it down on the portrait. So then um, Crystal's roommates come into the building uh, where they're working and they happen to also work as operators as well. And these women or the roommates are women and it is Nora and Sally. Now, Harry begins to flirt with Nora, but she denies his advances and Crystal pretty much makes it clear that like, She already has a boyfriend who is sent off to war and she's not trying to date nobody. And Nora really doesn't pay much attention to him. Like she doesn't think too much into it. And everyone ends up going on with their day. So then that evening, Nora is celebrating her birthday by preparing a dinner for her and George. And George is her boyfriend who is overseas, who is in the army. And so even though he isn't there, she likes to pretend he is and she's very devoted and loyal to him. So she's not going out with anyone. She doesn't want to go out dancing and doing stuff like that. She just stays in and tries to pretend life is normal and that he's there with her. So her roommates end up going out for their own reasons. Like Crystal, she has a boyfriend, so she goes out with him. And then Sally, she ends up um, hearing about, I believe it was like a comic book. And like the guy from the bookstore called her about it. So she ends up going down there to get it. So this leaves Nora to have time alone. Now, whenever she gets settled down, because she has a whole candlelight dinner and she has his picture sitting up where she could see it right in front of her. And it turns out he had wrote her a letter. And so she was waiting for this occasion for them to be alone to be able to read it. Now, when she reads the letter... She actually finds out that he met someone else and that he plans to marry her. And in more words than one, basically 
he wants to break up because he found someone that he loves and wants to be with. So this devastates Nora because she has been putting her life pretty much on hold for him and he's breaking it off over a freaking letter. So it just shows them where their headspaces are, which I get it. You know, being in a long distance relationship is not easy. And obviously she was more devoted than he was, or maybe he didn't take the relationship as serious as she did. So coincidentally, Harry from earlier, the artist ends up calling the phone. Now, of course he wants to talk to Crystal and when Nora picks up the phone, he thinks he is talking to Chris Crystal, but it's Nora. And before Nora can actually like say who she is or like tell him I'm not Crystal, he asked her on her date. And so with what Nora just read and it's on her birthday too, she's pretty much like, okay, she goes along with it. So she ends up meeting Harry at the blue gardenia and he's surprised to see her. And initially he's like, oh, what's the odds that you would be up here as well? Like I just called Crystal and we're supposed to be, you know, going on a date. And she's pretty much like, well, I was trying to explain to you that you weren't talking to Crystal. You were talking to me. But of course he was flirting with her earlier anyways. So he doesn't mind this at all. So they end up sitting down and before Nora had got there, Harry had already ordered drinks. He'd ordered the food. He just wanted everything to to be prepared when they got there. So pretty much it was like no distractions. They were able to just get in and enjoy themselves. And Harry made it very clear to like the wait staff, like, hey, do not let up on the rum rum because he ordered this specific drink, which was a Polynesian. And low key, that makes me want to see if maybe if I went to a bar, if I could ask for a Polynesian and they would even know what that is. But when I looked it up, I was like, that's interesting ingredients. But for some reason, I visualize it being like really good. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the drink he orders. And he's like, do not be light on the rum. So they're like, okay, cool. So they end up having a nice night, but... As it progresses, um, he continues to order drinks and Nora ends up getting very drunk. And when they leave the restaurant, Harry takes Nora to his place. So instead of him taking her home, he's like, well, I'm going to take you to my place. And when he gets to his house, he like gives her more drinks, which I'm thinking is kind of fishy, irresponsible, I mean, what other words can you think of? (laughs) Because I'm like, this doesn't seem right to me. You see how drunk this woman is and you continue to give her liquor. It just automatically sends off red flags to me because it's like, normally if someone's trying to get you liquored up, you can kind of assume what their intentions are, right? Especially because it seemed like some moments she just wanted to lay down and it was like, he keep wanting her to stay up and to drink. And it's like, She's kind of tired. She's drank a lot. Like, give her a break. So she, so pretty much she's so drunk at this point, she can hardly stand. And at one point they kiss and Harry ends up getting carried away. And Nora realizes she may have gone too far with this and she tries to push him off, but he becomes forceful. 
And so to get him off of her, because at first they were on the couch, then they end up moving by the fireplace. And so she's trying to like defend herself because he's like on her, like white on rice and he's not letting up. And so it's almost like that fight or flight type of moment. And so she ends up grabbing the fireplace poker and she like raises it up and instantly breaks like the mirror that is on the fireplace. And we can only insinuate that maybe she hit him with it, but it's very unclear. We don't really know what happens. So the next morning, you know, Crystal and Sally are trying to wake up Nora and um, they notice that she doesn't wake up too easy and that she ended up sleeping in her bed naked because her dress and her shoes are like right by her bed. And normally, you know, like during that time, it was like a routine, you know, women were more conservative. They weren't going to bed naked and stuff. They were okay. Uh, I take off my clothes, I wash my face, perhaps I take a shower, I brush my hair, I make sure to put on my nightgown. You know, women had a a way of upkeeping themselves and it, it was just kind of like a tradition. It was just what you did as a woman. And so this catches them off guard because they're like, you're in bed naked. You don't even have your nightgown on. And so whenever uh, Nora gets to work, they end up having cops there and the cops end up Basically, they are questioning all of the women that he's ever drawn. And of course, it's so many because he's been doing it, I guess, for maybe some years there. I'm not sure how long, but he's done it long enough where it's a huge list. And of course, this makes Nora nervous because what ends up happening is she finds out that he's dead. Now, she only remembers bits and pieces of the night, but she doesn't remember what exactly happened. So she can only assume or conclude that I was with him last. Now he's dead. I can't even remember the night I may have done it. And so she gets really nervous. She's really anxious. And she's trying to, you know, recollect what happened, but it's very hard for her. And then she's constantly seeing in the paper about cops looking for, you know, the women who did this to him. And oh man, I, I didn't know what to expect when I watched this movie, but I was very pleasantly surprised and this was a very good movie. So if you are interested in like older classic movies, this is definitely one I would suggest you check out. And it is in black and white, but if you don't mind that, then you will enjoy this movie. All right, let's go ahead and go through this cast. So another reason I actually wanted to do this movie was the lead actress, who is Nora Larkin. Uh, She is played by Ann Baxter. And I actually have seen Ann Baxter in another movie, which was all about Eve. And that was another movie um, I had did on this podcast. Um, So I wanted to see her in like a different kind of role. And it was very nice to see her. So she was also in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Then we have Richard Conti, who plays Casey Mayo. He was in The Godfather and Ocean's Eleven. And this is the Ocean's Eleven 
in like I believe the 50s or 60s but it was the original Ocean's Eleven which I didn't even know they had an original one but they do um then we have Anne Sothern who plays Crystal Carpenter um she was in the Wells of August and the Letter to Three Wives then we have Raymond Burr who plays Harry Preble he was in Rear Window and Godzilla 1985 then we have Jeff Donnell who plays Sally Ellis and this is crazy because I've never seen a woman with the name Jeff and I had to look and double take to make sure I was putting down the correct actress for this character and yes her name is Jeff Donnell um, but she was in in a lonely place and sweet smell of success then we have Richard Erdman who plays Al he was in Stalag 17 and Torah, Torah, Torah. And I thought this was a pleasant surprise, but Nat King Cole was playing himself. He was the, the entertainment at the restaurant. He was actually singing a song that was called The Blue Gardenia. And um, he's also played in movies like Small Town Girl and St. Louis Blues and what I noticed about him is he was an actor himself. So he did play in movies where he was characters. And then sometimes he played as himself being the musician and just singing and, you know, being the entertainment. And of course we know he is an icon. So that was very, very nice to see. Cause I'd never seen him in a movie before. So that was cool. And then last but not least, we have Ray Walker who plays Homer and he was in the fighting coward and bulldog edition. All right, I have a couple of fun facts. So first one, the director Fritz Lang and cinematographer Nicholas developed a revolutionary dolly for the camera that allowed for sustained tracking shots and intimate close-ups while shooting this film. Lang preferred the practice of tracking into a close-up shot of an actor as opposed to cutting too close up and editing. He believed the tracking close-up captured more of the actor's intimacy and emotions. And I agree with that. Tracking shots are can be so smooth and just create such a great transition into the different, you know, shots. So I definitely agree with him on that. The second fun fact that I have here is... Now, during her fight scene with Raymond Burr and Baxter suffered a torn ligament now I know that probably has to be the worst whenever you get injured on set because then no telling how long it took for her to possibly heal and maybe they had to stop production for a couple weeks I mean it could be such a mess but I mean sometimes it can happen all right the third fun fact I have is Okay, so this is related to just to put in perspective of how much things were in the 50s, okay? So two hamburgers and five coffees at Bill's Beanery, the cafe where Nora and Casey were eating their late night supper, had cost them a whopping $1.40. Two hamburgers and five coffees. Now, that would mean that it was 45 cents each for the hamburgers and 10 cents each for the coffees. Now, in our time, as of 2021, 
this same bill of fare would cost about $14. To think that there was a time where there you paid cents for an item, for food, for candy, for, you know, anything is mind-boggling to me. Like, we have progressed so much and everything is so cost costly now that... I just couldn't fathom me paying a dollar forty for one meal. Now, don't get me wrong; I wouldn't question it. I love it, but you know we're in different times now. All right, and the fourth and final fact that I have is George Reeves gives the police department's phone number as Michigan five two one one. Okay, so this is a fun little tidbit about how phone numbers were in the fifties because. Once upon a time, there was not necessarily area codes. Yeah, we didn't have a 10-digit number back then. It was much more simple. So, okay, back in the days when telephone exchanges had names such as Exbrook, Granite, uh, Klondike, the first two letters of the exchange name usually capitalized when written corresponded to the first two numbers after the area code of a current day U.S. telephone number. So many numbers of the era had five digits instead of four. Uh, so some examples would be like Beechwood, four, five, seven, eight, nine, um, or Pennsylvania, six, dash, five, thousand. So it was much different. I didn't even know that for a really long time there wasn't, there wasn't even such thing as area codes, so I thought that was really cool. All right, well, that is all for that movie. Let's get into the second movie we have here. Light, camera, action. Miss Hudson, in your own native city of San Francisco, there's an art gallery in the Legion of Honor in which there's an oil painting of Casanova. It's quite obvious that you have never seen this painting. For your information, Miss Hudson, this is what Casanova looked like. He had big ears, a scar over one eye, a broken nose, and a wart on his chin right here. I suggest, Miss Hudson, that when you return to San Francisco, you visit this gallery and see this painting. All right, that quote is by Lester Blaine who is played by Jack Palance. And the next movie we're going to be talking about is Sudden Fear, which is another Joan Crawford flick. And one of the factors in me choosing this movie was because of the fact freaking Joan Crawford was in it. And to be honest, before I saw Mildred Pierce, <laughs> the only Joan Crawford movie I'd seen, which didn't have her in it, but was supposed to be about her, was Mommy Dearest. So I've been very interested to see how she was as an actress. Now, this movie was released August 7th, 1952. Um, the writers we have are Lenore J. Coffey, who also wrote Four Daughters and The Night of Love. Then we have Robert Smith, who wrote The Second Woman in 99 River Street. And this was actually a novel that was written by Edna Sherry, which was published in 1948. And she also wrote Girl Missing and Tears for Jesse Hewitt. Um, and then it shows as uncredited, but it looks like Joan Crawford may 
had some sort of collaboration with writing the screenplay for this movie. Um, I'm not sure if maybe she just did and it was agreed upon that she wouldn't get credit for writing, but it did show that. So I thought that was interesting. And the director of this movie is David Miller. And he also directed the story of Esther Castillo and Flying Tigers. All right, let's get into the summary. So Myra Hudson is having rehearsals for her play that she has written. And she mentions to her director and producer that she does not like the actor who was playing the leading man. So she has her director fire him. Now the actor Lester Blaine, whenever he gets the bad news, he gives Myra a piece of his mind by telling her that her, basically her image of beauty isn't the only standard. And Lester is the one who had, uh, that I had quoted earlier. And that was his way of just basically saying like, you're saying I'm not good enough for this role, but there's so many different types of people out here and just because you don't think I'm romantic enough doesn't mean that I'm not you know and so uh he says this because the reason that she didn't want him to continue to be in the cast was because she didn't believe he was romantic enough um because she wanted basically the women to be in awe whenever they saw him on that stage And she feels a little bad once he does says that to her. But, you know, the show must go on because at the end of the day, she's going to want what she wants because this is her play. Now, I want to mention this as well. Um, Myra is a very, very, very rich woman. So not only is she a playwright, but she also is an heiress. So she has lots and lots of money and she gets to enjoy life and does whatever she wants. But she also does make her own money from her plays. All right, so moving on from that. Now, fast forward to when the play has premiered and now it's over and she's gotten rave reviews about it. Uh, Myra's actually going to head back home, which is in San Francisco, which it's funny because, you know, Lester mentions like when you go back home. So it's already knowledge that Myra lives in San Francisco because they were currently in New York and that play was on Broadway. So she stayed there for the purpose of the play. And then after it was done, she's going back home. Now, um, whenever Myra gets on the train, so whenever the train makes a stop in another city in New York, Myra opens her window to see Lester getting a newspaper and then boarding the train. And this surprises her because she hasn't seen him since she fired him. So... It's safe to say, now I'm not sure, well, I know pretty much what Broadway, when a play goes, it has multiple shows, um, because they do mention that they haven't seen each other in about a month, so I don't know if it was because maybe so many weeks of rehearsal and then it went on to go one time and maybe had multiple runs, I'm not quite sure, but it's been about a month, so... Uh, whenever he is walking past her roommate on the train, she calls after him and he stops to see what she has to say. And she pretty much mentions like, oh, it's a coincidence that, you know, you're getting on this train. And then he pretty much tells her like nonchalantly, why well, I always take the train. And so Myra basically tries to offer him an explanation about, you know, her casting choice. Um, but he tells her basically he doesn't need to hear it. Not like in a mean way, but like, Pretty much you can save it. I'm cool. No need to talk about it. 
So she offers him to come into her room and have a drink. And then they begin to engage in conversation and to break the ice. He brings up like, hey, do you know how to play uh, poker? And she's like, oh, yeah, I used to play it as a kid. And so they end up going to conversation, blah, blah, blah. And so they continue to hang out. And the next stop is supposed to be in Chicago. And he even offers to show her around when they get into Chicago, like all of the places, you know, he knows about there because he's real familiar with the city. And so before they get off the train to explore Chicago, she goes to put on her lipstick and he actually goes to one of the attendants on the train and he's like, hey, is there a way that you can get me a ticket to San Francisco because I only got one for Chicago? And pretty much the attendant's like, okay, we can see what we can do. But of course, obviously they allow him to um, get a ticket to San Francisco because he ends up staying on the train with her. Um, because whenever they get back from Chicago, they continue to engage in, you know, some, uh, engaging conversation. I hate to keep saying that word, but they were, they seem really into each other. They're having a really, really good time. They're enjoying each other's company. Now, Myra seems very smitten by him and he's very, very charming. And it's kind of ironic because she didn't want to cast him because she didn't think he was romantic enough. But then she ends up being smitten by him. And it's like she can't get away from him, you know, not like in a bad way, but like she doesn't want to be away from him. She wants to continue talking to him. She wants to continue having his company with her. Now, whenever she goes to San Francisco, he ends up joining her and they continue to hang out and be together and they just are having lots of fun. Now, this was a red flag for me because my question is this. If you are always just taking the train, what's the odds that you go all the way to San Francisco with me? And then once you go into San Francisco, you're just hanging out with me. Because then my question would be, well, what was your plans to go to San Francisco if it wasn't to just be here with me? Because obviously that wasn't supposed to be original plan. But that would have been a red flag for me because at one point I'd have been like, well, is there anything you were planning to do in San Francisco? Like, I mean, I would hate for you to stop everything you're, you want to do or what you plan to do here to, you know, be hanging out with me. But of course she does not question it (laughs) and they just continue to have a good time. Now it does end up getting so serious Because at one point they end up getting married (laughs) and it does seem kind of fast, but I guess when you're in a whirlwind and it's almost like you're in this honeymoon stage, you can't really, you know, dictate what amount of time should tell you when you should get married to someone that you feel like you're falling for, that you're in love with. But they do get married and She thinks that he's absolutely perfect. She thinks he's charming. He's considerate. He's helpful. Um, He's just everything she's ever wanted in a man until she ends up realizing that he has an ulterior motive. And it isn't just to love and be there for her, um, but it involves the last of the money she is supposed to be receiving from her father. Now, let me tell you this. This was another good one. Oh my God, this movie was just as good. And you know what? 
if you've ever seen the movie Mommy Dears, and I feel like at some point I need to just talk about that movie and kind of talk about um, just how they go from, you know, Joan Crawford being this respected, you know, brilliant actress to them creating a movie like Mommy Dearest where she's like this neurotic and 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 selfish and you know mad woman and it's and and like as I'm watching her I'm just like wow like she's just such she's she seems like she's a likable woman she seems like she has her head on straight she has this grace this class about her which I get it she's playing characters so people can be different than who they're playing but it just still it blows my mind so uh let's go ahead and get into this cast which is pretty short and then we have the fun facts oh my gosh I have like a bunch of them because they actually have some really really juicy stuff going on in this film and I was like "Ooh, okay so I was like let me um let me write that one down let me write that one. like they have some really good um behind the scenes stuff from this movie so, all right, let's go ahead and get into this cast first. All right, first up, we have Joan Crawford, who plays Myra Hudson Blaine. She was in the most iconic Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and she was also in Mildred Pierce, which I talked about in my 40th episode. Then we have Jake Palance, who plays Lester Bain and he played in Shane and City Slickers. We have Gloria Graham who plays Irene Neves. She was in A Lonely Place and It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm going to take a second here because I believe Jeff Donnell who played in the movie I talked about just previously, The Blue Gardenia, they were in that movie together. So there's another little connection. Then we have Bruce Bennett, who plays Steve Kearney. He was also in Mildred Pierce. Uh, he plays the lawyer this time, but he was her ex-husband in Mildred Pierce. And he was also in Sahara. Then we have Virginia Huston or Virginia, Virginia Houston, who plays Ann Taylor. She was in Out of the Past and Flight to Mars. And then last but not least, we have Mike Connors, who plays Junior Kearney. And he was also in Ten Commandments and Swap Woman. And another little connection here, uh, Ann Baxter was in Ten Commandments as well. So they played in that. So there's another little connection. All right, let's go ahead and get into the fun facts that we have. All right, so the first fun fact that we have, according to Jack Palance, Joan Crawford and Gloria Graham did not get along and got into a physical altercation at one point during filming. The fight started after Graham sat on the edge of the set during one of Crawford's close-ups and very loudly sucked a lollipop in an attempt to anger Crawford. It worked and Palance noted that the all-male crew watched the fight for a few moments rather curiously before stepping in to break it up. <laughs> Which is so messed up, man. Now that is what you call petty. All right, the next fun fact I have is at the time she made this film, Joan Crawford had recently been released from a long-term contract with Warner Brothers 
and like many of her contemporaries, was struggling to keep her career alive. She was savvy enough to recognize the potential of this material and played a major role in shepherding it to the screen. When her instincts proved right and sudden fear became her biggest box office hit in years, Crawford was rewarded for her efforts. You go girl. All right. The third fun fact we have is this film was Jack Pounce's big break garnering him a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination and helping him get cast in the following year's Shane, for which he also was an Oscar nominee. So that's awesome. You get that like two years in a row. That's crazy. All right. The fourth fun fact that we have is Gloria Graham reputedly had an affair with Jack Palance during the filming of Sudden Fear. Now, what's ironic is they were basically having an affair in this movie. So then I guess art imitates life. The fifth fun fact that we have, Crawford received her third and last Academy Award nomination for this film. And it was the only year she competed against Betty Davis for the Oscar. Now, both of them lost to Shirley Booth for comeback Little Sheba. Um, And if you know about the feud, supposedly, allegedly, that Betty Davis and um, Joan Crawford have is very, very interesting. Um, But there's like a YouTube video about it. If you look it up, it's very, very, it's a very, very interesting um, feud that happened back then. All right. Now, the sixth fun fact that I have is RKO and the Mutual Broadcasting System teamed up to promote the film by sponsoring a contest in which listeners were urged to write in letters explaining what their first sudden fear was and how they overcame it. And the top prize was a trip to Hollywood. I love when they do promotions like that to advertise films. Like, I think those are so, so fun. I don't think they do it as much now. I remember like in the 90s and stuff that was kind of popular, but... that's kind of, I guess, dying down. Maybe they don't get uh, much of a response like they used to. I'm I'm not sure. But I did always like uh, seeing those. All right. And the seventh and final fun fact that I have, as the film's executive producer, Joan Crawford was heavily involved in all aspects of the production. She personally hired Lenore J. Coffey as the film's screenwriter, David Miller as the director, and suggested Elmer Bernstein as composer. She insisted on Charles Lang being hired as the film's cinematographer and personally cast Jack Palance and Gloria Graham as her co-stars, which is something else that's ironic that if Gloria and Joan actually did not get along, it's crazy that she was the one who actually cast her. So that's interesting. You know what I have to say about this this theme and movies that we talked about today? Um, f- first of all, just do not sleep on a classic movie. Do not sleep on these movies from like the 30s to the 50s because I'm telling you, they will surprise you. They have some really good content. They have some really good dialogue. They have really good actors. And all around, you can find some really good movies that you will be like, man, they just don't make movies like that anymore. So 
I tend to recommend these movies, to be honest. And, and more than likely, you probably have like a grandparent or maybe even a parent who knows these movies or maybe likes these movies as well. And maybe if you brought them up to them, they'll be like, oh, I remember that movie. But <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. I need to actually ask my um grandma. I need to be like, um, did you watch these movies? Because I know I... We were going back and forth and she told me about some movies that I'm like, oh, I need to check out and I need to do them on my podcast. But anywho, that is all that I have for the movies for this episode. Um, So make sure to comment below if you plan on seeing these movies or if you already have, share your thoughts about the film. Also, if you have any other fun facts about these movies or maybe you have some corrections on what I said, please feel free to comment below. And don't forget, you too can suggest a movie or a theme you'd like me to discuss on this podcast. And I would actually love that and enjoy that. Now, before I head out, I want to thank my listeners. If you are a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. You're a real one, period. And if you're a new listener... Thanks for stopping by and giving my podcast a chance if you've made it this far. Um, And I do hope you come back again. Well, you know what time it is. The show's over. The credits are rolling. And I'll see you at the next show time.